What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Okay, motherfucker! What are you looking at, sir? I'm looking at you, miss. Run that, baby. I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special Imprint Companion. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Today, uh, my sensational frequent co-host, Lexi Toliopoulos, is not here. But instead, I have the great treat of talking to one of my great friends about a, a topic which I believe he's the world's premier expert about. And that is Walter Hill. Yes, Imprint have brought out this sensational Walter Hill box set. Featuring films like Johnny Hanson, Broken Trail, Hard Times, The Long Riders, Extreme Prejudice, all on Blu-ray, and then a sensational 4K Blu-ray of The Driver. I decided if I'm going to talk about Walter Hill, I need to talk to a Walter. So I'm going to talk to the man who wrote a Walter Hill film, Tragedy and Masculinity in the Films of Walter Hill, Walter Chaw, whose book I am nursing. It has been annotated. It's a signed copy from the great Matt Zolazite bookstore. And he's one of my great friends. He's an inspiration to me. He's a mentor and a great friend. And I just love talking about everything. And so now I get to gush at him about a topic that he knows way more <laughs> than any human being on the planet Earth besides perhaps Walter Hill himself. Walter Chaw, thank you for coming on and talking to me on an imprint companion, my friend. It's such a treat to talk well, to you again. You're an inspiration to me as well, Blake. It's a it's a mutual admiration society. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I, I I I love talking about Walter Hill. He's one of my um, favorite people on the planet and one of my favorite filmmakers too. It's it's a it's a treat. Thanks, Blake. You are welcome. And look, this is the. I want to talk to you about your book, and I want to say that it is the most gleefully infuriating read of all time because <laughs> what happens is. I, I, I usually have, a, my family have a, a little caravan that we go down and stay away on ho- school holidays and stuff with the kiddos. It's not far away from my house, but I don't have access to a lot of my streaming stuff. So I have to take a lot of movies down. It's very like, take some physical media. And when I was reading in the summer, I lay in my hammock or lay on a beach. You know, I, I actually forgot to send you the photos. I'll see if I can find them. Sitting on the beach reading Walter Hill's <laughs> book, Walter Charles, Walter Hill book. And what is so gleefully infuriating about it is that it immediately made me want to like study every film again and almost like watch the film then 
take a brief moment, read your chapter about it again, go back and cast my lens at it one more time. And what is so fantastic about this imprint collection, especially for folks in Oz, is that finally, like for the first time almost ever, we have access to these films. And so when I was reading your book, like I, I was going through chapters and some of the films I'd never heard of. And then I was like intoxicated by this thing that I hadn't seen and the beautiful way that you wrote about it. So it was a real treat. I just like, this felt like a harmony of like, oh my God, now that I have these, I get to go back and read all those chapters again and, and dissect them for, for your analysis, because now I have them. I can literally do what I wanted to do. Yeah, it's sort of interesting you say that because when I started writing this book, it's probably about eight years ago now that I started this project. What, uh, a lot of these movies, his movies had not made it to next generation. Yes. You know, they've made it to VHS, they made it to DVD for the most part, but they, very few of them had made it to Blu-ray when I started this project. You know, I had to order Extreme Prejudice from Korea. I had to order Streets of Fire from Germany, where it's called Strassen and Flammen. Um, you know, I, 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 I Strassen and Flammen is the coolest name ever. It's the, it's, it's, it's the only name that could be cooler than Streets of Fire is, in fact, <laughs> Strassen and Flammen. And I, uh, I, but I was not able to, to source them easily. You know, Geronimo was a very limited Twilight Time uh, a title, I think, for a while. Uh, Broken Trail, forget about it. You know, the, the, it was available on DVD only, I think. So a lot of these were really strangely difficult to find and that was part of my you know it, it, it spurred me on in the early going i was like this is a guy who's had such a huge impact on on modern action filmmaking in particular and and he uh, how come he's not getting this kind of respect even like technologically getting yes. this kind of respected through physical media and you know the 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 good people imprint during the lord's work here with, with these great box sets um yeah having these six movies together Incredible. And, you know, of course, they did a uh, limited edition of the Warriors, including the long sought after uh, theatrical cut of the Warriors on, on, on Next Generation. Um, it, it's it's amazing to have that resource now. It, it just wasn't available as recently as, you know, seven or eight years ago. And you and I are such massive proponents, you know, probably being um, uh, uh, being of our generation. It's like I want them in my library, you know, like when I'm hearing about this international movement of different studios shutting up shop for physical media and stuff. I'm, I, I've literally talked to people, especially I've got some friends. I know that you've got them too, of like friends who frequent like vintage things or garage sales or whatever. And I'm just like, if you see a pile of movies, pick them up, I'll give you the money. Like, I'm just like, do not, do not let them go to waste. And they're like, why I go, because I don't know if they're ever going to be available on physical media again. Like I don't, and they're not going to get reprinted. They're not going to go and give us these random things that never made it to next gen. So um, yeah, it's really a treat. Um, and well, well, well the, the, there are hundreds of titles on VHS that never made it to DVD, but yeah. you know, what's really alarming nowadays is like something like the French connection uncensored. They're, they're not reprinting that. Yeah. You know, I mean, the stuff that's out there is already out there. Now it's sold out. It, it's the weirdest time. And, and I know that Australia has been hit with uh, Disney, right? They're, they're not yes. producing any more physical media for the entire continent um, after a certain point coming up. That's terrifying, you know, because those people, cannot be trusted with those archives no. they, they, they don't care you know they, they, these are the same people that would just burn entire warehouses full of film prints because they need the room yeah you know i mean they're 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 pencil pushers and 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 their accountants they, they do not care and it's and, and trusting our cinematic legacy you know our whole legacy of art to those people it's like you know in John Frankenheimer's the the train, it's like just giving the train back to the Nazis. There's something really <laughs> essentially um, wrong about 
the, the this course but yeah you, you know i mean it, imprint and you know uh, others like them are so essential they, they have become our archivists the, yes the, these are the people that are holding on to our legacy you know when all these you know the zaslavs and the, and the igers and all when all of those people trundle off into their golden parachute futures um this will all that be all that's left in the rubble are these people doing this work it's like in Fahrenheit 451, right? All the people yeah. that memorize the books to recite them to each other and be, it become those things. These, you know, small print uh, b- boutiques, and I'm including like Criterion and Arrow in that, um, are are so val- so invaluable to our future uh, and, and, and future scholarship. We, we've, we've just given it all away, Blake. You know, you and I were, we were growing and, up. It's like we, we couldn't watch these things. No. And, and all of a sudden we could, but now we're giving it all back. That's That's insane it's it's awful and it's even in even in this country like i was talking to a friend who is in the you know the distribution arm for a huge studio here and i was we just we frequently go back and forth on email you know occasionally about different topics and one of the things that we came up with the other day is like i I was getting incredibly frustrated because you know you and i and especially you know looking at this incredible box set you know We've got in this box set, you know, at least two movies from the 1970s in it. And I was just like, just out of curiosity, how many of these 1970s titles for this person's unnamed studio that they work for are available? And almost 90% of just an excerpt of the 1970s of a huge Hollywood studio has never even made it to DVD. And I'm like, this is the 1970s in American cinema. arguably the best decade ever of cinema for its whole spectrum of different things. And I'm like, are you telling me none of this is available? And they're like, no, it's like some of it's on print. Some of it's there, but it's just not, it's not, it's never made the leap to physical. It's never gone onto a streaming service because there's no appetite for it. So yeah, I, I truly, I'm so, I'm so grateful and I'm incredibly proud that I've been asked to, um, uh, to be a part of some of the, the, the imprint releases in any capacity. And I'm so grateful that you, you know, um, have been a part of them, uh, too, which is, and, and particularly in this one. So I want to talk to you very, very quickly. Um, I was going to go chronologically, but I want to talk to you about one because I, you know, I don't know how much we could probably go on for about five hours on this episode, but I'll try and keep it as brief as I can. But I want to <laughs> talk to you about one that I'd never seen before. And you had talked to me about this being, one of your very, very favorite uh, Walter Hill films. I want to talk to you about just the magnificence of extreme prejudice. Absolutely imperative that this job look like civilian operation. Get down! I expect a little cooperation. I expect you to stay out of my way. Somewhere in America, a secret war is being waged. This is a case of national security. Go. A war of deception. It's a daylight hit. I come over to talk about the bomb that went off yesterday. I got two people dead. Fought by a phantom army. Sergeant Buck Adwater killed Laos in 74. How can they be officially dead and two of them locked up in there? It's classified. Now, he's the only one that stands in their way. I got a feeling the next time we run into each other, we're going to have a killing. Termination with extreme prejudice. Anyone could be the enemy. Tell the FBI to kiss my... 
tell me about it? I can't talk about it. I gotta do something about it. Nothing is what it seems. What the hell's the military robbing banks in Texas for? And unless he can stop them... It's poison. Everything he stands for is at stake. Very unusual. What is? Ordering the termination of an American civilian peace officer, clearly loyal to the country and in the process of bringing a known criminal to justice. What we're gonna do is we're told. Right, Sergeant? Kill him. Kill him like an animal. The only thing that ever scared the hell out of me, Cash, was myself. We are space-age high-tech, and we get caught by some stone-age cowboy. Nick Nolte. Extreme Prejudice. Walter, this is a film that has has been aped, has been dissected almost and autopsied seemingly by action filmmakers to make 30 of your favorite movies. And this has all of them. It's got Predator. It's got um, the Alamo. It's got like Cormac McCarthy style frontier, uh, you know, borderlands fighting and crime. Uh, it's got some Mag 7 in there. It's just unbelievable. Talk to me about this. I don't know this uh, this poem about violence and men. No, I, 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 this is my favorite Walter Hill film. It, it 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 wasn't when I started writing it. By the time I was done, I realized how much this movie encapsulates in the best way the best parts of all of his movies. You know, I think if you wanted one Rosetta Stone for understanding Walter Hill's appeal and, and, and lasting allure. Uh, if you will, it's, it's extreme prejudice. And for a lot of the reasons that you sort of mentioned, it's everything. It's a, it, it's the, it's the every flavored bean, I guess, <laughs> of the Walter Hill. Uh, but you know, I, what really made me fall in love with it initially was Rip Torn's character yes. in it. And he's only in the first, maybe third of it. And, you know, he plays Sheriff Hank, who is the mentor to the star of the film, Nick Nolte's Jack. Uh, you know, they're, 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 they're both Texas Rangers. They're, they're just real, hardcore good old boy law lawmen and um you know rip torn really reminds me a lot of the tommy lee jones performance in no country for old men yes where you know he plays sheriff ed tom in that one and, and a lot of the speech cadence a lot of the you know the the way that that that, that he functions throughout the course of the film as, as an observer of how the world has gone bad yeah has, has gotten overripe and rotten and fallen far from the tree uh, if you will, and you know, there, there's a remarkable line that he has in it talking about how you, you know um, the water will always find the path of least resistance. That's why there's crooked men and crooked rivers. Um, right, it's just it, it's, oh, it's 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 unbelievable, and and the warmth and the the kindness and wisdom that he has for Jack as Jack is just going through it. He can't, you know, he's he's working too much. He can't talk well. He can't articulate his feelings to us girlfriend played by Maria Conchita Alonso. Um, and, and, you know, Maria Conchita's character, Sarita, has had a her ex-boyfriend played by Powers Booth. Indeed, this is the best cast ever assembled. Perhaps. Yeah, it, it, it uh, is. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, you're just rattling off. I'm like, yeah, see, that, that oh, this is going to... Oh, I haven't even gotten to, you know, Michael Ironside gotten... <laughs> and Clancy Brown and William Forsyth. Come on, <laughs> this is ridiculous, right? But but she, she has an ex, 
ex-boyfriend in, in Power's booth who's gone to the other side. So it's sort of like an infernal affairs kind of thing, you know, where you have these, or, or, or hard-boiled even, where you have these two spirit brothers or literal brothers or, you know, best friends from, from childhood who separated and gone. One's gone into the law, Jack and, and Cash, Cash Bailey has gone the other way and, and runs a little, little little town to the south of the border, uh, you know, and is a druggy and he smashes scorpions with his hands and, and he's just a real bad dude, but they both love Sarita and Sarita kind of makes a choice in the middle of this film to leave Jack because Jack is so emotionally unavailable and incommunicative, especially after he loses the counsel of, of, of his, his mentor. And it, it's tragic, you know, it, it, it's like, man, just talk to her. She wants to talk to you. Just that's all you got to do. And all he's really got for her is impatience and, and intimidation. And finally, he, there's a scene where he just yells. He's like, I don't want to talk about that. Okay, I don't want, you know, and you hear that going through a lot of Walter Hill's movies. And 48 Hours is a really, uh, you know, famous line where Nick, Nick Nolte's saying that, you know, I, I don't want to talk about my girlfriend and Eddie Murphy's sort of egging him on, you know. So throughout, <laughs> there are these men in Walter Hill's movies that are emotionally closed off to their own feelings and their ability to, to express them. It's not that they don't suffer; they suffer greatly. It's that they're not able to express it, so they begin to lose all the people that, that are important in their lives, all the softness in their lives. And for Walter Hill, the only end for violent men is violence. There's not really, you know, that's their destiny. You can maybe carve out a different one occasionally, but for the most part. If you're violent, you come to a violent end. And, and that's where you know, these characters are headed in this, in this film is this really violent wild bunch kind of shootout in this Mexican town. This modeled a little bit after the book version of the end of the getaway, uh, which they had to, to deviate from for, for the film because it's so weird. But, you know, they, he kind of brings <laughs> it back for Extreme Prejudice. And then they go down there and there's a band of ghost soldiers, not, not, not supernatural, but they've been, you know, killed in action, quote unquote, so they can go into deep cover and form this black ops operation. Clancy Brown is, is I, I, come can on. I, can I, can yeah. I tell you how unbelievable <laughs> the device of having a whole crew of ghost, ghost soldiers that are manipulating this sort of undercover heist. And then you've got this like very traditional, like it's this two thing, it's like the old cowboy. And then it's a contemporary kind of Vietnam, post Vietnam war narrative that are like clashing together. And you would think those two things don't work, but it, they work gangbusters like the whole time i'm like every time those guys were off screen i was like give me those guys like that like give them 10 movies like why why am i seeing the end of them now like that cast those boys their faces their attitudes i'm like unbelievable like yeah it, it, there's not there's there's not a pretty face in the movie and the bad guys <laughs> you know i mean it, they're, they're led by michael ironstein Right, and and there, there, there's William Forsythe who has this really antagonistic uh, relationship with, with the, the, the African-American uh, uh, soldiers on the team. It's like, uh, but yeah, he's got this really antagonistic racial relationship and they do a lot of racial taunting yes. with each other. And there's that element that goes throughout Walter Hill's films too, that the very things that bring men together also start fights yes. uh, if they're not friends. You know, it's like, you know, my my closest friends that I've grown up with will call me all sorts of racial invectives and stuff because we love each other. <laughs> if anybody else did that, we're scuffling, you know. Oh uh, yeah, and yeah. So, you know, it's funny that Hill gets this, and and there's every kind of masculinity is represented in this film. You know, you have the computer guy who's a little bit softer who doesn't like to see the you know the mouse getting stabbed, and there, there, there's there's stuff that 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 he shows the spectrum of masculinity. So again, you apply that that template to the rest of his films too, like the Warriors, for instance, or 
Wherever you have these gang movies with, you know, these troop movies with groups of men, there's every kind of man. They're, they're even Southern Comfort. You know, yes. they're, they're, he, you know, he'll, he'll hire openly gay actors in the 70s and the 80s and he'll hire them and have them play like themselves. It, it, he's extraordinarily progressive, although he would balk at that term. He doesn't, you know, think in those terms. But what he really does sees really clearly is how men are different and how men um, in respond differently to the same pressures. You put these men in a pressure cooker and everybody kind of comes out looking a little bit differently. You know, it's funny that this movie actually shares the same cinematic universe as Red Heat. <laughs> uh, and it's, it, I know, I don't know, what to, you know, because there, there's a character actor named, named Luis Contreras who's in it, who plays Lupo, who's uh, Cash's second in command in the, in the little Mexican town. Yes. And at the very end of it, he puts on Cash's white, blazer and says now i wear the you know hat now, now i'm the i'm the king and then you see him the same character played by the same character actor lupo very briefly selling drugs to uh you know one of the undercover guys in red heat it's the same cinematic universe anyway uh <laughs> that's the only something that you'll ever pick up if you've spent way too much <laughs> of your life at this point <laughs> watching these movies over and over again but you know i i love it because hill knows how to shoot action he knows how to tell a story of a character through the movements that he makes, the way that he fights. Um, you know, the, the, the prologue to Extreme Prejudice, you see how fast Jack is, yeah. how, how, how Hank is a perfect wingman in, in a dangerous situation, how, you know, they're poor on both sides, you know, they're, they're working class cops, and then there's, they're, they're kind of talking to like working class guys who are getting into the wrong kind of thing, try to make a little bit of money. He's, you know, Hill's a very interested in blue collar heroes. You know, the first three alien movies, which Hill was very involved in the first three, you know, are about three different classes of blue collar people. The first one is about truckers, space yeah. truckers, essentially <laughs> miners. The second one is about soldiers, grunts, as they were called, referred to by Carter Burke in the second film. And the third one, they're about prisoners. And so it's like, you know, that's Hill in a nutshell. He's not interested in, you know the the actions of kings he's interested in the actions of of of, of blue collar people and again you, you only have to watch extreme prejudice to get that yeah um you know the, the the heroes and the villains are all struggling they're yeah. all struggling and they're just kind of clawing for a little space a little foothold um but yeah and the final battle clearly is uh the wild bunch he made this movie not long after uh sam peckinpah died and Peckinpah was a a, a mentor a, a for, for Hill, someone that Hill always looked up to. And, and, and it meant, meant a lot to him to hear from Peckinpah after his early movies. And so, uh, yeah, the, this was the, you know, and, and his, his movie Crossroads that, that, that uh, you know, that I didn't initially like, but I love now, um, was, a, was a tribute to, to his, his own father, who was a, a drummer and a, and a musician. And so, anyway. This is the one for assertive father for extreme prejudice. Extreme prejudice. Even just if this was in a box set alone with a commentary track from my friend here, Walter Chaw, who's just been telling us all about it, it would be worth it. There's interviews with Clancy Brown, Michael Ironside, with the director of photography, Matthew Leonetti. There's other commentaries. There's three commentary tracks on this thing. You have to own this. This is part of it. Now, I'm going to read a quote from your book um, before talking about our next film, which is, the Lone Riders struggles under the burden of two creators with competing and perhaps even incompatible philosophies. It's like parents who disagree on the rearing of a child. If it's not at the end, 
uh, fatally hamstrung, The Long Riders is at least deeply flawed, often tonally confused, and atypical of Hill for its thematic shallowness. You can love pieces of it, but it's difficult to love the whole on any level other than an academic one. They were nine men. They were four families of brothers. They rode together from Missouri to Minnesota and from Texas to Tennessee. They were the most famous outlaw heroes of the West. They were known as the Long Riders. This is their story, and it's as close to the truth as legends can ever be. Now you don't give us no trouble, mister. I want your sons, Mr. Samuel. What do you want them for? For robbing banks and trains, ma'am. What do you think your chances are of bringing them in? It's an amazingly stupid question. Wait for them to come out. People say they got one of the youngers. People say they got the wrong younger. You men did an excellent job of making heroes out of every one of those gentlemen. I'll write me a book. Make myself even more famous than I am. You ever been alone? Excuse me, miss. I was wondering if you cared to dance. I'd be delighted. Coming back for you. We're gonna be meeting up real soon. They got a real fat bank up there. Scouted it out myself. Northfield. You open that safe, mister, you hear? The Pinkett had told us he might be coming. They're robbing the bank! David, Keith, and Robert Carradine as Cole, Jim, and Bobby Unger. James and Stacy Keach as Jesse and Frank James. Dennis and Randy Quaid as Clell and Ed Miller. Christopher and Nicholas Guest as the Ford brothers. The Long Riders. But I want to I want to talk about this one with you particularly because it has some great special features on this. There's two discs here, there's commentary tracks as well. But the Long Riders for me started to be so much more about the incredible performance of the Carradine brothers rather than the Keaches and the Ungers taking over the Jameses as like a, an almost like a, 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 an unfolding revisionist Western, but a revisionist storytelling of the James and the, the Unger gang together. So I had, I was looking at David Carradine and in the parlance of our time, I was like, kids with all due respect, David Carradine fucks in this movie. He is absolutely sensational. It's like that whole sphere of the movie pulsates with life and has, all, I think, all the highlighted moments of the, the younger family. This is my first time watching this. And it was such an interesting thing because I've seen so many movies with the depictions of Jesse James that it was really fascinating to watch, you know, uh, he'll pivot the movie specifically around, um, uh, you know, the kind of lesser of two keaches, if you will, um, uh, to, to be at the, the center of it. So talk to me about what, what things jump out at you and leap out at you for the long riders. 
Well, the Western is Walter Hill's favorite genre by yes. far. And, and he would say, and I have said often, I think in interviews that he's only ever made Westerns, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and uh, you know, that, that's going kind of, I'm not <laughs> sure I entirely agree, but I get where he's going. He loves Westerns. He loves the format, all the, his, his favorite directors did Westerns, Sam Peckett, Bob, Bob Aldrich, Howard Hawks, you know, the, the guys that he really talks about our Western filmmakers. And so this was his first opportunity to make a Western. And so I, I think he made allowances on this movie in terms of, 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 of control of the material that he wouldn't continue to make. And then you see that pivot pretty quickly after this because he makes Southern Comfort, which is very personal and may, maybe his most nihilistic film. I, I, I always think that, that movie is so uncompromising. That's oh the word God. that comes to my head every time I watched it. I think I watched it like a year or two ago. Our, friend, yeah. our, our mutual friends, you know, the Jen Johans and Jed Ayers and mm-hmm. Travis Woods and Jordan recommended that we watched Southern Comfort. And I watched it and I was like, that movie is, that movie packs a wallop. I need a rest, you know, after watching oh, that. Oh, it's thing. a real swallow your shotgun kind of movie. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it is grim. And, you know, to the point where at the end of it, they compare the two, the two surviving heroes with two pigs getting slaughtered on screen. You know, that's, yeah, that's the vision of the film, and the uh, the cinematographer for that movie, Laz- uh, Andrew Laszlo, he draped tarpaulins all over the swamp in, in Louisiana where they were shooting, so that the whole thing looked miserable. And the 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 actors are miserable. You know, talking about David Carradine, you know that they're miserable sludging through the swamp. You know, uh, but but yeah, it's Long Riders is something else to think about. Long Riders is it began its life as a musical. It was a it was a musical written for the stage by uh, James Keach, who saw himself as a bit of a playwright. So the material came to Hill as something that was written by James Keach, and Keach was going to be in control of it. And Keach had cast himself, you know, just like Lin Manuel Miranda had cast himself <laughs> in the main role. And even when he's maybe the least charismatic of all the people, just like Lin Manuel, he's the worst singer in all of his musicals. But he's always the lead, you know. It's like Tarantino <laughs> casting himself in movies. So you know, so that's partly what happened. And and I think you know, even if you cast Stacy Keach as Jesse instead of Frank, you have a very different film. Very. There's no part of Long Riders where I felt like, and maybe it seems like you felt the same, where I felt like Jesse was a leader of men. I wouldn't follow James into Never. You know, I, I wouldn't follow him around the block, much less into, you know, wild escapades on the great northern Minnesota. And I wouldn't, he's not a leader of men. He's like kind of a, he, he's a charisma vacuum almost. He doesn't have the same kind of movie starness of all the movie stars that are in this movie. Yes. <laughs> right. I mean, I, these guys are clearly, you know, and, and for all the talk and, and all, all, all that I applaud Hill for using every different kind of masculinity, with the possible exception of this and possibly, Another 48 Hours is a really curious film. Um, he always knew what the strengths were of his actors. And here, I think he's a little, he was a little bit overwritten by James Keach, who said, well, whatever we do, I'm Jesse. And so now Hill's like, all right, you're Jesse. So, you know, what-, what, what I got to ride things? around. I got to ride yeah. around that massive impediment of like a Jesse James it's movie where Jesse is the ma- least interesting it's person. massive. It's massive. It's massive. It's like saying, I'm going to make an Abraham Lincoln movie and I'm going to cast my my uh, my son-in-law who's never been in a movie before. You can cast anybody else, but, you know, Nerdlinger from the second floor is going to be the star. <laughs> and so that's it, a little bit harsh about James, but, you know, he'll never say this, you know, and I talked to Hill a lot about this movie because the very first time I met Hill, I went to his 
house and I was pitching him the idea of the book. I wanted his blessing. You know, I was going to do it without him, but I wanted his blessing to do yeah. it. And, you know, he invited me. He's an extraordinarily gracious and kind person. And the first thing he says to me, though, you know, if you sit down and, you know, he's pouring me a, a glass of uh, champagne, and he says, okay, I've been warned about you. You're the guy that doesn't like <laughs> you're the guy that doesn't like the long riders. And that and he said that. And that was it. And I'm sitting there like, okay, well, this is not going to end well. I might even get, you know, I might, might even catch a hiding here. But <laughs> I, I said, you know, I, I don't remember what I wrote about it, but I do know that his movies are sticky for me, that even if I don't like them the first time, I'll, I want to revisit them and yeah. I want to understand why. And that's why I'm writing this book. And it's like, that's a pretty good answer. And so we were able to proceed from there. Um, but e even after, you know, and I've changed my mind about his, a lot of his movies, like Brewster's Millions, I never could understand, but I really like it now. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I love Crossroads, which I didn't like before either. But, you know, I never really warmed up to, to the long writers. And he, he, he knows that. And, you know, even right before this was going to go to print, like, you know, seven years later, he called me up one day and he's like, I'm just concerned. I just want to take have one more talk with you about the long riders and and do you did did you know and i was like yeah and I, did you did you this and and he finally said well i just want hope people understand that it was written like a piece of music that the, there's the same rises and falls that you'll find in music there's a chorus that re recurs there's this sort of that's the rhythm of it and it's not like that in my other movies and i was like okay i get that i know that it was a musical you know he was he was reassured that even if he couldn't win me on this one that I was at least going to give it a fair hearing. And I wrote almost more about this one than any other one because I really wanted to give it a fair hearing. And to your point, like the Carradine brothers are fantastic in it. I think they're like, really great. I, I think like maybe the best I've, the maybe the best oh, I've ever seen. Like, like they are so light years ahead that if, if, if I was, you know, one of the great bits of, um, I guess your personal writing philosophy that I have adopted in mine is like, you know, when a movie, when a movie like works for you, you've got to write about all the things that make you feel alive and make it feel alive. And when a movie doesn't work for you, <laughs> as in your words, you've got to be a coroner for its corpse. And I feel <laughs> like the, 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 there's so much to salvage in the life. You can't be wholly mm -hmm. committed to the whole thing because there is like a rot in there at the center that he's working around, but the youngers are like well, so transfixing. I feel like the youngers, even Robert Carradine as yeah. Bob Younger. Yes. I, I feel like the youngers are so good in this movie that they're frustrating. Yes. That they're so good that you're like, <laughs> can we not have this long walk with Jesse and his wife? Can, can we just not do this? You know, can we not have like, the fight with... Uh, you know with uh with, with sam star and i mean you're just kind of wasting my time because what i really i don't want to watch and it isn't these guys and you know even if i, I even love the end of it where yeah. it's like james keach takes center and, and not not james stacy keach take, takes center and he's riding that train and look you know it's like oh god imagine the movie you know and i i hate to be the guy who's like i would have done this to, but you know th there's so many things that were not exactly right i think for, for this film i really believe southern comfort the movie that immediately follows this is the movie that addresses a lot of those issues yes that does indeed you know find a carotene in, in in you know um front you know more front and center you know keith and and and, and figures out what it's about it has powers booth in this 
a knockout performance and and has a lot to say about you know men intention with each other and with the environment and vietnam of course and all these things that you know the long riders is beautiful to look at it opens on you know this ride across the crest of a hill at sunset the magic hour you know and you see the train it's like everything that walter hill loves about the western all this iconography he's filled the long riders with it it's beautiful it's beautiful <laughs> but it doesn't hold together as uh for me as 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 compelling you know it just it just doesn't really work for me um the parts of it do i think pamela reed is amazing i was just gonna say i was gonna say in when you were saying about when jesse goes for a walk with his wife i'm like i could have taken 20 to 30 more minutes of david carradine and pamela reed just please doing anything fighting fighting (laughs) yeah effing the other effing you know whatever i was into it she's so good i mean there's that scene where she stands up from the bathtub and she's completely like you know holding a gun she's like completely unmanned yes uh uh uh, uh, uh dude you know it's like the, there's so much power in her femininity and her sexuality in that moment it's uncompromised it's not exploitative it's just power and it, it's a real reminder you know for me too you know this is the guy that made ripley a woman Yes. You know, we talked about Walter Hills as man's director and all guy flicks and everything. The level of powerful women in his movies is extraordinary and intimidating. I mean, The Warriors, which is just about boys, right? No, it's not. The, the Warriors is about mercy, the yeah. character played by Deborah Van Valkenburg. Um, you know, he, he, was, he, he spent the first part of his career, Walter Hill did, looking for a James Dean figure. And I think he found her in Streets of Fire. Diane Lane <laughs> is James yeah. Dean. She has remarkable women characters in his movies, and you know, it, you know the the uh, doctor again played by Sigourney Weaver in the assignment, and you know the Michelle Rodriguez performance in that film too. There's so many amazing women characters in his movies, and I think you know we do him a great disservice when we don't appreciate that. I want I want to pivot from the the frustration of the compelling characters not getting their attention and the faces of these amazing characters back. I want to take us back to 1975 and I want to take it to a quote from your book, Hill, the romanticist, Hill, the Western romantic and a young Hill making the decision not to see one of his heroes die because of his soft heart elements, each that will come to define Hill's entire body of work. Hard times is where it starts. Now tell me, how do you make money? I knock people down. You mean like a prize fighter? No, they're pickup fights. The money's made on bets. 1933, America had hit the skids. People were out of work and out of luck. Life was as tough as a cheap steak. Well, you've been down the long, hard road. Who hasn't? It was hard times. I got a husband in jail, no job, and no prospects. I don't look past the next bend in a road. Columbia Pictures presents Hard Times, starring Charles Bronson as Cheney, a drifter. When I get enough change in my pocket, I'm going. A loner. Are you going to stay the night? Not this time. A man who spoke soft. I barely know you. Yeah, but would you like to? And hit hard. James Coburn as Speed, a born con man. All side bets, I keep 75%. That's how it works. Who can make a fortune in a day. I propose to toast to the best man I know. Me and lose it in a minute. What the hell are you doing? You don't want no trouble. Just you pay your debts. 
Speed was the hustler. Cheney was the hitter. Together, they just couldn't be beat. Charles Bronson and James Coburn, together, they're a knockout. In hard times. Can I just long for, in the most romantic sense, for faces like James Coburn and faces like Charles Bronson again. Holy, holy hell, hard times is so, I mean, for as tough as it is, it's so damn beautiful and it's so damn heartfelt and so penetrating even now. And its pace, I think, is so deceptively amazing because the pace of the film, you don't feel how much it's impacting on you because of the pace of that submersion. By the time it's got you, you're gone. Like you, 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 you're a puddle at the end of this thing. This, this really hit me hard, Walter. And when I read it in your book, I was so moved and I was aching to see it. And I'm so grateful that this is one that is included in this set. What a beautiful piece of um, sports writing hard times is, right? Yes. It's, yes. it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's like an article that you read out of a vintage boxing magazine from the <laughs> 1930s or something, you know, the, he comes in on a train at night and he goes and he, he you know, he goes to an oyster shack and he uh, doesn't tell the man his name, but they, they begin a partnership. And Oh my God. You know, the whole courtship <laughs> that Bronson has uh, a Ch- Cheney has with, with, with his real life wife, Jill Ireland, uh, who plays Lucy in the film, you know, the courtship where he's just clumsy and taxi driver, like, right. That's weird. He's not, he, he's, vo- he's not vocal, but he's made a plan. This yeah. is the woman I'm going to spend my life with, you know, and the, and the, that's, but she doesn't know that, and she's already making other plans. <laughs> there's the when when he figures that out, there's this beautiful heartbreak where he just is like, you can't just leave. Like, yes, I can, you know, and that's it, and he leaves. <laughs> and and the, there, there's so much romance to this image, I think, you know, especially when you're a younger man, this image of stoicism of like you are the baddest guy, but you're not a braggart. Yes, you, you you have a lot to offer, but no one knows it. Um, you're wandering from town to town like a tumbleweed. You know the, the, these really beautiful masculine archetypes. You know that, that end up destroying men. Don't get me wrong, but <laughs> when pre- presented in the right way, you know it plays like Byron. You know, and and so you know, um, the you know the the other member of the the male trifecta in that movie is played by Struther Martin, who can be a lot if he is not in the right role, but he's so good in this role as as you know a guy who had to drop out of medical school because of his more his, his opium addictions morphine addiction we we surmise and you know he, he confesses that in a in a graveyard you know the same graveyard that we'll revisit with johnny hansen in a few years but you know he says uh you know some people don't you know this, this happens to and some people that that happens to and which one are you you know the, the brevity of the dialogue the brevity of the you know plays like masculine haiku you know, <laughs> the way that we talk to each other sometimes and, you know, and how good is Coburn he's not always good but he's so good in this movie he's, he's always interesting but not always great and he's just so great I think the magic of Coburn because it's all about like you said it's all about casting it's when Coburn gets to play opposite a very formidable partner he and and he has to dance around someone's energy and that's what is so beautiful and there's such subtlety and 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 very 
deaf, deliberate choices made from Bronson, which is why, you know, he's such a magnificent actor, but Coburn gets to play the dance and do all the notes in the low register and all the notes in the high and, and Bronson gets to be very even keel. And I think that he loves that dance. I'm going to, I'm going to play with, you know, he's the counter puncher, you know, so he needs, uh, he needs someone to be driving the momentum, but he's so the slipperier he is, the more I enjoy Coburn. So I loved him in this role because he's, he's, he's dancing around this movie. He's like so verbal, right? Yes. yes. So like, and, 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 and Bronson is so sub vocal. Yes. Right. <laughs> you know, but and, and, and it's like he's like a rock, and there's this, like, this, <laughs> this, this manic bee or something. This <laughs> terrible analogy, but you know, there's something buzzing around him for the whole time. And it, you know, to your point, it, you know, they they occupy the complete register, and then Poe becomes this real interesting emotional counterpoint. He's almost like the uh, expression of of emotion that 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 Cheney's not capable of expressing. You know, I love that he's lying in a in a room, and there's a fan blown above him and all these images of cycles he comes in on a train he leaves on a train he it's like he's just this this thing you know he's like shane or, yes. or the john wayne character the searchers he's this the, the this thing that's learned skills in the wilderness that are not welcome in civilization although civilization requires those skills to become civilization you know it's the great irony of moses right you lead him to the promised land but you, you can't come in and, and, <laughs> and that's kind of the role of cheney that's kind of the role of you know the bruce wills character in last man standing of all of these western heroes who we need your killing ability to clear out this area and make this place safe for us now you gotta go because now you, you gotta go, go. Yeah, you gotta go. And that's Cheney. I mean, he appears for a while and then he's gone again. Um, and, and there, there's all of these different fights in this in the movie that 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 are just beautifully choreographed. And you see that again in Undisputed later on in his career. But you know, what I really love, my favorite scene in Hard Times, is when they go to the first fight and it's sort of this Cajun picnic. Mm. And he and, and Cheney sees a bear in a cage. And it's just sitting there, you know, the bear in a cage. And maybe there's going to be bear baiting later. We don't know exactly why they have a bear there. It's never explained. And Cheney just goes over there while, you know, his his handler uh, speed is, is, is setting up the fight and everything. And Cheney just kind of wanders over there, stands there and looks at the bear. And he'll let them look at each other, the bear and Charles Bronson, for, you know, a good minute. And it's very weird because at that moment, he does a little editing trick to make the scene even longer. He, like, reverses the film. It's the only time he's ever done that. <laughs> In his career and so that scene obviously means a lot to him that here's this guy it's almost like a kafka thing it's the hunger artist seeing the panther in the cage it was like you're seeing a reflection of who you are you're this animal who's in a cage who's, who's being asked to perform um at certain times it's, it's it's this remarkable moment a remarkably poetic moment and you know consider this is his directorial debut this is the first time Walter hill directed a film um ridiculously polished uh, yeah that's i think that's when you know that's when you know prodigies when they come in and there's they 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 make a film and you're like where were the where were the hard angles shouldn't there have been some more shouldn't there have been some rough edges on this it's just and especially because of the the stature of the two actors he's got in this film in 1975 are monstrous and they just come in and he's got total command of their their entire performance. I love that you use the word command because I think another malady of first movies, oftentimes, even stuff like Citizen Kane, is that there's just too much in it. Yes, you know, I, 
you know, I, I sound like the emperor now in uh, Amadeus. <laughs> Tiny Nelson, Citizen Kane. I love Citizen Kane. I wouldn't change a minute of it, but it's very full, you know. Yeah, and hard stuff. It's almost austere. Yes. Right. It, it's it's the, it's 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 Spartan and it's patient. And it's weird to say about a bare knuckle boxing movie, but there's just so many moments like when he's walking Jill Ireland home, he's walking Lucy home, uh, and that's a long scene. Or when he's just having like coffee with her, and it's a long scene, and she's trying to get something out of him, but he's just sort of sitting there like with, with, with his little smile. And you know, in fact, that the movie had more stuff. It was much longer, and it all had to do with Lucy. And Hill was like, I don't know that Jill Ireland can act. He he never. <laughs> said that but i think that's what happened and so he cut jill out of like most of you know most of her role got cut out of it and bronson never really forgave him for it you know he was like sort of like for the rest of their you know lives you know or being around each other in hollywood and so he'd be afraid to run into him because he's afraid that because bronson's a scary dude he's like <laughs> he, he, he thought for the longest time bronson was gonna you know punch him out he he, he does say that there was a moment of reconciliation where he would you know, they talked and everything was fine and everything. But yeah, I mean, Bronson held a grudge for a long time, but I think all the right choices were made. And again, for a first-time director, man, control. You know, tease your word. That's what it is. I know you're you're so great at this. This is one of the reasons why I love following Walter on social media is that we talk about sometimes uh, double features and you're great at sort of counter-programming. I'm going to offer you one this time in this show. I think Hard Times would pair perfectly with Koganada's Columbus. Oh yeah, interesting. Talk talk about two very controlled first features, extremely somewhat austere, almost. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. totally different things, cross gen, intergenerational. Um, really great. We talked about archetypes. We talked. Sorry, we talked about archetypes. So, of course, we're going to probably finish our conversation with a film that is unabashedly uh peddling archetypes which is his incredible 1978's the driver some of the criminal types these days they uh think that they're real cowboys think that they can just uh drive around do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it work for a piece right Ten thousand up front how do we know you're that good get in you're crazy is that him it wasn't him did you ever get caught on one of your jobs hasn't happened yet. Hill gives the driver's cars weight, value beyond the monetary, a skin so that they're flayed in flight, scraped against concrete on their brothers. You wince in sympathy. Their metal screams are anthropomorphic. And if you watch the movie with a group, you'll find them leaning into curves and away from the crashes as if the force of gravity were working against them at the turns. I could not agree with you more. I've seen this movie so many times on 4k. It looks stunning, but I literally was reminded of this and wanted to find the quote because it resonated with me so much that I literally in this movie, the experience of the turns and the bashes against the corners, I was doing that. I'm dodging. Like I'm, 
dodging blows in a boxing film. You know, it's so incredible. This film just is timeless and, and everything about it is great. And particularly every time I watch it, I love Bruce Dern. Just one, one sand grain more than I already love him. Can you talk to me about Walter Hill's kind of one of his most definitive films other than probably the Warriors, the driver? Yeah, it's it's really a fascinating thing. I mean, he was heavily inspired by, uh, you know, a, a screenplay that I read by Alexander Jacobs, I think, um, uh, for Point Blank, um, from memory serves, I'm hoping memory serves. But, you know, he, 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 he read it and he said, this is how I need to write the rest of everything forever. I need to write it like this. It's going to be shorthand. It's going to be haiku. I'm going to just, you know, write very briefly. And it's, it's going to, you know, and I have a theory about, you know, why, why Deadwood didn't work out for him beyond the pilot episode that he directed for David Miltz, because David Miltz is very much a, you know, that show is very much a writer's show. He'll yes. very much a director's director, but, you know, he'll rewrite everything that he shoots. He's a writer first. You know, he's yes. Amazing writer. He wrote a movie called, Hickey and Boggs, that's one of the great Eleanor's ever, ever made. Um, but, you know, there's such, such an economy of the language here in the drivers. The first time he really implemented those theories of, of haiku uh, in, 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 in writing. And, you know, he doesn't even give names to the characters. You know, yeah. Ryan O'Neill's character is the driver. Bruce Dern's character is the detective. Isabella Johnny in her English language debut is the player. And then there, there's the great Ronnie Blakely as the connection. You know, and the bad guys with glasses or teeth, you know, they're, they're physical. <laughs> attributes. So, you know, but he's, and the, the, the dialogue in the movie is similarly elliptical and strange. You know, it's almost like he's, it's almost like a James O'Roy piece where you've taken out a lot of the connective tissue and all you have left is just the meat of yeah. it, you know? And, and even the, the heist plot is like confounding kind of. Yes. At the end of it, there's just sort of this like, wait a minute, she's, and he's here and went, and where the, and uh, you know, it's, but that's not the point, right? And <laughs> yeah. you know, when you're watching the driver, it's like it's almost tactile now when you watch it in the theater. But in, in the 4K transfer too, there's you're enfolded in the sort of velvet midnight of LA that doesn't really exist anymore. You know, I mean, it, it, it captures a place and a time where uh, there's no ambient light in the sky. Oh that's what God. I can't. That's what I can't get over. What I'm watching this and I'm going, there's no glow there's no thrum like that's when you get to capture these things that are shot in real places and times that's the thing that's so fascinating for me i'm like this where's all the ambient yellows like it the city glows and here is the city glows like it's some kind of nuclear uh, you know you're, you're sort of drawing a nuclear wasteland or something like that because the sky is lit by all these lights and it's i love what you said that velvet blackness that velvet midnight it's so it it, it makes you continue to keep checking in like is this a made-up city like where is this like it's not it can't be la can it no especially for that period right there were you would see movies like this out of the grindhouse in new york this is yes. what new york, the, the you know times square supposed to look like yes it's not what, what la looks like it's almost right. like when nicholas rogue went to venice to shoot don't look now yeah. <laughs> What the hell's going on? This is not Venice, <laughs> um, you know. So, so, so Hill was doing that. It, you know, it, it it was Harry Kleiner was the screenwriter for for Bullet was the, that that was the screenplay that got him. He loved Point Blank. Bullet was the anyway. Sorry, I'm just remembering that because <laughs> Kleiner's also the guy who wrote Extreme Prejudice and then wrote you know Red Heat. He, yes. he got to work with his hero times. But anyway, yeah. So you know, he was he was he was emulating 
pioneer for this. He was doing all this night night shooting in LA, which people didn't do. And you know, he really wanted the feeling and the geography of being in a car chase, which I love because I think too often, you know, like the Fast and Furious movies, which I know are not supposed to be whatever, but you, you have no sense of geography. You know, I'm not, I, I, I don't mean how you can, you know, go from Cairo to 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 Berlin in three minutes and Fast and Furious, but but I mean, even in the car chases, you don't know what's happening. Yes. You, know, you don't know how far back is he? Where's that turn coming? What's going? You know, there's not that sense of is he you know, catching? Is he catching them? You know, or is yeah. he being caught? Who's like, winning? Who, who's who's winning? Like, exactly. Yeah. The most yeah, recent example. The most recent exemplar that I think does this so well is the Jack Reacher car chase. Yep. That's, yep. that's yep. an example of like the geography makes sense. The black of the night. You know what it is. The, that beautiful car gets bashed and dinged and you feel devastated <laughs> for it every moment yes. that it dings into a wall and Tom yes. Cruise is racing. It's like that took all the right lessons from Walter Hills, the driver. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The sense of speed. Yes. The sense of uh, danger, you know, all that sense. And, you know, these little reactions that you have from, you know, Ryan O'Neill is not going to give you more reaction than he can, but, you know, like Isabella Johnny having like little gasps, like yes. little involuntary, you know, when, when they're, it's like, Oh man, they're doing this. This is actually real. And and you know, I, I I love that the entire characterization of the driver is how he drives. Like you know, when he's really offended, he just destroys these bad guys' cars. You know, car that you know you, you want me to show you if I'm a good driver. Okay, here we go. And he blows off both of their doors. He gets them knocked off around <laughs> columns. He scrapes all the paint off. And then he's like, you want to hire me? You know, it's like, he's just this unbelievable jerk. But you <laughs> get the feeling, you know, about how good he is. And then, you know, he, again, he'll, he'll transplant this major Western trope, right? The gunslinger who all the young gunslingers from all over are coming to test themselves against this gunslinger. And then you have this young driver <laughs> and the driver show up at the end of it wanting to test himself. And the driver shows mercy and says, oh, get out of here, kid. <laughs> Knowing in the back of his mind that this guy's going to be coming back and getting him at, at, at some point, uh, probably because he let him live here. It's just a really, from, from, from the barest of barest of bones, you have this really rich um, essay about, masculinity again and 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 the way that women are sort of you know again a really really powerful woman in the player and you know ronnie blakely's the connection is a fascinating character because she's the, she breaks my heart every time in a lot of ways she's the the driver's handler oh my god and what happens to her is no, essentially just, rape and yeah. it's the same kind of rape that ripley uh suffers in the first alien you know with yeah. the rolled up magazine but with the the, the gun and stuff and that, that kind of yeah it, uh, it it's heartbreaking you know it's heartbreaking because it's you sort of get a full weight of the, the kind of power uh that rape is designed to rob a woman of you know because she's such a powerful figure but then Isabella johnny is the smartest person in the movie again another powerful woman in uh walter hill movies but th there's yeah the the driver is just one of those movies that is a litmus test for me a little bit where you know i'll still like you if you don't like it but it's like tom waits <laughs> or, or, or 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 neil young or something it's like if you don't get it i also can't kind of explain it to you you yeah. know or, or 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 nick cave you know these the, if these you can't artists if you can't listen to neil young live at massey hall and hear him give his rough draft of about three of the greatest songs yeah. ever written and you can't be moved i don't know if i can help oh. you i'm not sure if I can help you, but it's okay. I can't help you hear it. Yeah, <laughs> I can't help you. I can't help you hear it. You know, I mean, 
I, I, I respect that. You know, some people that don't like cilantro, it's like, I, I respect maybe you were born with a gene. I don't know. <laughs> but at, at the end of the day, I, 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 I can't, we don't actually talk the same language at a certain point. Yes. You know, it, it, if you can't appreciate, you know, Tom Waits' early stuff, even like Bone Machine, if you can't appreciate that, I respect you. That's fine. You know, we don't all have to like the same things, but we're kind of just different. We're kind of different. <laughs> and that's and okay. It's okay. But we're fine. different. Uh, hey, different strokes, right? <laughs> but the, the 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 thing about the, the driver, and I'm looking at my 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 framed driver poster over on the wall here as we're talking. Think about the drivers. Like, if you don't like the driver, that's cool, but we're not the same. Yes. Yeah. You know, there's and I can't really defend it because you can tell me well i don't like the way they talk it doesn't sound real yeah i don't like that and, and a, a lot of hills films fall into this category where it's like the, the warriors um and you know roger ebert didn't like the warriors and but everything he writes about the warriors that he didn't like he's right and those are the reasons i like it you know one of the things that he wrote <laughs> about the warriors was like you know it doesn't seem real these guys they're all spaces in the same direction when they talk and they take turns talking and it seems like a play and it seems like, you know, this whole Greek tragedy. And it just doesn't seem, I'm like, okay, but I like all those things. I like that it doesn't seem real. I like that they're talking this way. I like that this whole movie looks like a jukebox. I think it's great. And the, I can't make you like that. It, 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 because you're right about it. You, you haven't miswatched it. No. Right? So when you watch The Drive, you're like, why do they talk like that? Why is there so little dialogue? Why don't I know what's happening here? What's 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 going on and it's like well you're just listing a whole bunch of it's like looking at a menu and they're like what would you like would you like less talking elliptical uh not uh like frenetic action that you kind of displaced you kind of don't know what's going on i'm like you're saying things that turn me on so let's have one of everything <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah don't throw me with a good time but, but it's like you know when you read somebody keats and they ask you why it doesn't rhyme i'm like man all right i mean I, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, <laughs> we're just different, you know. So yeah, I mean, but the the driver, you know, you you, you sort of touched on this. So many of his movies are so influential, you know, across decades and genre and time and space. You know, there's he he's influenced so many artists and so many films that you wouldn't think of initially, immediately. Uh, as being having been influenced by Walter Hill, indeed, we're influenced by Walter Hill, and, and it's like. It was a fascinating process writing this book for me because I always liked his movies, but it was much later that I connected that it was all the same person. Yes. Doing these movies. You know, how do you go from, oh, Warriors is amazing. And I also like 48 Hours. And I also like Red Hate. And have you seen this boxing movie called Hard Times? And it's like, this is all the same person. <laughs> and how, how do you begin to. And you're like, my favorite science fiction movie of all time is Alien. And you're like, Alien, exactly. You're like, what? Exactly, exactly. The same right, guy wrote right, this right. shit? Uh, have you seen Deadwood? It's amazing. It's the most amazing <laughs> thing I've ever seen on television. And uh, there's, a, there's another boxing movie called Undisputed with Wesley Snipes. And it's like, yes, you know what? It's all the same guy. I mean, the reason prestige television kind of exists is because of Walter Hill. Yeah. You know, he's one of the producers on Tales from the Crypt, but he also did Broken Trail for AMC. It was the first major foray in the original programming. And immediately afterwards, they invested in Mad Men. You know, so so you find Walter Hill at the beginning of, of, of these movements where he's like, wait a minute, you know, we're really going to TV and we're really going to digital storytelling stuff. I'm going to make a movie called Trespass. And I'm going to have both Ice Cube and Ice-T in it. And they're going to be playing, you know, and I'm going to use a lot of handheld surveillance camera stuff. And I'm going to be doing all this different you know you know film stocks and everything to tell the story in 1992 
you know, right before all this, I just, it's, he's astonishing to me because of his humility. You go into the study, um, you know, in his home and his bookshelves are full. And it's obvious that they weren't full because of, you know, an interior designer, because, you know, they're, they're, because of the, uh, because the books are so specifically reflections of this film. And so the more that I was writing about him and the more that I was, you know, I was really stunned at the amount that I had to research and how stupid I felt throughout the whole course of it. You know, like, oh, I have to read Borgia. It was a big gap in my education. So I went back and I read all of Borgia and you know, all the short stories. And it's like, okay, wait a minute. The way that Borgia has organized his career sort of the same way in terms of genre that Hill's organized his career. You know, the way that he keeps naming characters Poe, and then he has a character in uh, the assignment that talks about a specific essay by Poe. Uh, I forget what it's called, but it's 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 essentially the piece that Poe wrote about why the Raven works. And um, <laughs> that becomes like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, you, you the, the Strother Martin character in Hard Times, your very first movie is named Poe. Have you been talking about this piece of critical analysis in all of your movies? And, you know, I brought that out to him and he's like, you know, you're the only person who's ever asked me that. And then he moves on. <laughs> right, he didn't answer the question. Um, but yes, it is the, you know, the question is the answer. So, you know, he was one of those guys that there's so many, he left a lot of breadcrumbs in there. And I think the moments where he does things like the director's cut of the Warriors, or when he does things, you know, where that that you're like, wait, why, why, why did you do that? I think he's really had this yearning, as we all do, to be known and to be understood as something other than what he's been thought to be. You know, I mean, he's been he's been dismissed, I think, his entire career as one type of artist, when in fact he's the other kind of artist. Um, there's something very, very fascinating and loaded about the things that he's doing and the conversations that he's having with us right at the course of his films. And I'm just really glad that, you know, with all these new releases and, and stuff like your program that, um, that he's, get, get, he's getting his flowers now. You know, I, I think too often these great artists don't really get their flowers so after they're gone. Until they're gone. Yeah. But, I mean, Tony know, Scott yeah. is another one that I think that uh, if, if Tony could have heard how much people love him, yeah. Um, uh, at the time, you know, you never know what could change the the course of history. Yeah, maybe we'd still have him. Maybe we'd still have him. But but honestly, this has been such a delight to talk to you about this. Um, this is one of my favorite conversations we've had ever because it's you on Walter Hill, which is you know in our personal lives and often out of recordings, I have my favorite conversations with you about Walter <laughs> Hill. Um, so it's it's so nice to to hear you talk about it here. I'm so happy that your fingerprints are on this set and I'm so happy that all of these films are here for me to enjoy. So firstly, run out to get the Walter Hill box set from Imprint Films. Run out to get the Walter a Walter Hill film, Walter Shaw's book on Walter Hill um, and just, just drink it in. It's absolutely a delight. So thank you, my friend. This has been an absolute pleasure as always to talk to you. Hey, and, I, and you will probably edit this out. I hope that you don't. I should have mentioned it earlier, so it would have been harder for you to edit out. But I wouldn't have been involved with this box set without you, your, without your kindness and your generosity and your thoughtfulness and reaching out to those guys and saying, hey, I know a guy that's working on a book right now and you maybe you should talk to him about this because, you know, who the hell am I? And so uh, it really means a lot. Your friendship means a lot to me. Uh, it means so much for me to be able to champion movies that i love you know you as well i know obviously you know that's, that's all you do and so um <laughs> for, for, for me and i don't mean that's all you do but i mean that's what you love to do this that's is what, what, why it's we my do purpose this. 
that, yeah, it's all of our purposes if we're doing it right, right? It's champion the stuff that needs to be championed. And to, to have the opportunity to champion those films in a box set that's released, you know, for next gen for Walter Hill, that wouldn't happen without you. And so oh, I owe you so much. And I'm oh, so grateful. Honestly, I feel like sometimes if there's anything that I can do, it's like uh, everything that we've done on One Heat Minute Productions, I always think selfishly what would make me happy and the <laughs> thing that would make me so happy i'm like i know a person that i would want to hear talk mm. about a walter hill movie and he's one of my dearest friends i don't care about any other consumer i am the consumer that i'm thinking about <laughs> and so if part of that is there so you know i you are so welcome and of course it makes the most sense in the world to make that connection because as soon as i'd heard that they were working on this a long time ago i was like well, you, there's only one human being on the planet that should be talking about this as far as I'm concerned. And I'm sure there are other people and clearly there are. There are some great historians and documenters and filmmakers and writers and phenomenal cultural commentators who have, have contributed to making these, uh, each of the individual releases in amongst a Titanic box set, so wonderful and loaded for people who love film. Um, but, you know, you're the best, my friend. Uh, you're you're one yeah. of the greats, and I and I love you dearly, and your friendship means the world to me. And that tiny little gesture for me was, um, at the same time as that you love it, I was also being the most selfish consumer in the world, going, <laughs> I would like Walter Chaw to commentate Walter Hill movies for my own personal amusement, and if I can make that happen for all consumers, then I'm very very happy. So you're welcome, and I love you, and thank you so much for doing this again. Hey, and I love you back. like such a 20th century movie it feels like something david lean would have done or tried to do uh when he still had that kind of currency and even then he might not have succeeded it's incredible because like if you if you don't have time to watch all five seasons of lost you can just watch fearless <laughs> not a week goes by that i don't think of the ending of gallipoli it's left a mark a uh, year of living dangerously uh, you know, and then something like Last Wave, even that's so uh, deeply embedded with the land and the story of the land, the story of the place. You know, I don't know that I'd seen very many movies at that point in my life that had such a down ending and they had such a you know sort of strong sense of folklore uh, 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 attached to it as that. And something always so poetic and lyrical about Peter Weir's work. Gallipoli was the first movie that ever traumatized me, and I don't think I ever really recovered from it. <laughs> and I'm still upset that they played it in school. Like, I don't think it's actually possible to make an, they say it's not possible to make an anti-war movie, but I think Peter Weir pulled it off. Because yes. no one watches that movie then thinks, I want to go to war. Uh, Peter Weir is the greatest director that Australia has ever produced. Like, bar none, hands down. Like, no yeah. one else has even in the room. I think you have covered some really titanic filmmakers and some really titanic films so far, but I I truly think what makes Peter Weir special and what makes you doing this one special is we don't talk about Peter Weir that way, and we should. Peter Weir is one of those guys who I don't get why he isn't a bigger name, why he isn't more in that rarefied air, yes. because I think film for film, he's one of our very best filmmakers. He has brought his A-game 
repeatedly to <laughs> many properties. There are films of his that I hold very dear. Fearless, uh, you know, uh, The Mosquito Coast. I will fight somebody if they talk bad about The Mosquito Coast. It's, man, I love that movie. But in general, I just think he is a special filmmaker, a smart, lyrical, um, hallucinatory filmmaker. He's a very dreamy filmmaker, and I don't think he gets his due. You know, Master and Commander is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, you know, it's, it's easily one of the best movies of the last 20 years. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's a grand scale. There's a historical backdrop to it, but at the same time, there's a, such an intimacy in the relationships. Uh, which I think is not just a great film and one of the last great epics in the truest sense. Um, I, I think is actually kind of a sliding doors change point moment in, in cinema history. I think 2003, when that comes along, and it is a an old-fashioned, you know, we don't make them like that anymore type film. I think if Master and Commander spawns a franchise at that point, the entire cinema landscape globally is completely different. That That's the movie that I wanted to see. Ten of those, you know. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, I know they're big fans of Fast and Furious and everything. And God bless you. But Master and Commander <laughs> should have been. It's one of those things, again, I... I am not uh, I'm not a seafaring man, sir. <laughs> but there is a sense of authenticity. There's a sense of really watching a, a genuine dedication to recreating history unfold on a big screen in front of you that can't help but inspire just genuine admiration and awe. If you're going to pick a film where he really brings every one of his skills to the table, it's Master and Commander. I think you picked the right one, man. Yeah, very excited to see what you you pull you pull out of this Blake that's right our next series is Peter Weir and Russell Crowe's Master and Commander the series is called Podcaster and Commander